Hey everyone, welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales. I am your editor, producer, host, and all-around person who does... Thank you for listening. As always, the show is brought to you by bunnieslippers.com. I just have to say, the Highland Cow Slippers continue to keep my feet warm as I record. Oh man. Woo, baby. And hopefully in October, I'll be throwing a pair out into... Uh, some panel group at the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Hopefully that's going on in October. I hope everyone's doing well. I hope everyone's staying safe. I hope everyone's staying clean. And when you're out and about, staying sterile. I don't know. Hey, just keep your brain going. Listen to some Oz. <coughs> I, I wonder what happens if, if uh, you sync uh, this podcast up with... Uh, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, or who? Maybe if you uh, play the podcast while you watch Live at Pompeii. I don't know. Anyway, so <laughs> um, I, I don't mean to laugh at my own jokes, but there's no one else here too. So yeah, um, hope you checked out and enjoyed David Heath talking about Wizard of Oz and pop culture. And coming up soon, we're going to have Ken Height talking about The Wizard of Oz. I should have done a special where I put them together, but I didn't think about that. Oh, man. I fell down some stairs the other day. I hurt my ankle and my wrist. It's... I'm, I'm finally getting this all out at the last minute, but yeah. So, hey, I hope you enjoy this. I hope you enjoy this week. This is the final week of Oz. This is the fifth story of... Dorothy Gale? Yeah, Dorothy Gale. Okay, so... But there's a ton more Oz books out there. There is seriously an insane amount of Oz books. They kept writing them. Not just... Uh, like, um, kind of like the Oz... Kind of like the Oz Society approves fan fiction kind of stuff. It's a ton of stuff out there. I, I, I recommend checking out the artwork at least. It's, it's very cool, interesting stuff. And... Yeah, Wizard of Oz, it's fun, it's, I enjoy it, Hope, oh, hopefully you're enjoying it, and you've made it through the five books, I can't remember what next month is, but it's going to be fun, and also don't forget to check out People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, coming out on Tuesday of this week, and we're going to be talking about a certain region of France that Clark Ashton Smith wrote about, and what else can we think, yeah, no, remember to subscribe, listen, uh, tell your friends about it, and that's the best way you can help the show is rate and review on iTunes, Stitcher, and anywhere else that podcasts are found, because that's what's helpful. Here we go. Chapter 7, How Aunt M Conquered the Lion These are your rooms, said Dorothy, opening a door. Aunt M drew back at the sight of the splendid furniture and draperies. Ain't there any place to wipe my feet, she asked. You will soon change your slippers for new shoes, replied Dorothy. Don't be afraid, Aunt Em. Here is where you are to live, so walk right in and make yourself at home. Aunt Em advanced and hesitatingly. It beats Topeka Hotel, she cried admiringly. But this place is too grand for us, child. Can't we have some back room in the attic that's more in our class? No, said Dorothy. You've got to live here, cause Ozma says so. And all the rooms in this palace are just as fine as these, and some are better. It won't do any good to fuss, Aunt Em. 
You've got to be swell and high-toned in the land of Oz, whether you want to or not, so you may as well make up your mind to it. It's hard luck, replied her aunt, looking around with an awed expression. But folks can get used to anything if they try, eh, Henry? Why, as to that, said Uncle Henry, slowly, I believe in taking what's provided us and asking no questions. I've traveled some, Em, in my time, and you hain't, and that makes a difference between us. Then Dorothy showed them through the rooms. The first was a handsome sitting room, with windows opening upon the rose gardens. Then came separate bedrooms for Aunt Em and Uncle Henry, with a fine bathroom between them. Aunt Em had a pretty dressing room besides, and Dorothy opened the closets and showed several exquisite costumes that had been provided for her aunt by the royal dressmakers, who had worked all night to get them ready. Everything that Aunt Em could possibly need was in the drawers and closets, and her dressing table was covered with engraved gold toilet articles. Uncle Henry had nine suits of clothes, cut in the popular munchkin fashion with knee breeches, silk stockings, and low shoes with jewel buckles. The hats to match these costumes had pointed tops and wide brims with small gold bells around the edges. His shirts were of fine linen with frilled bosoms, and his vests were richly embroidered with colored silks. Uncle Henry decided that he would first take a bath and then dress himself in a blue satin suit that had caught his fancy. He accepted his good fortune with calm composure and refused to have a servant to assist him. But Aunt Em was all of a flutter, as she said, and it took Dorothy and Jellia Jam, the housekeeper, and two maids a long time to dress her and do up her hair and get her rigged like a popinjay, as she quaintly expressed it. She wanted to stop and admire everything that caught her eye, and she sighed continually and declared that such finery was too good for an old countrywoman, and that she never thought she would have to put on airs at her time of life. Finally she was dressed and when she went into the sitting-room, there was Uncle Henry in his blue satin, walking gravely up and down the room. He had trimmed his beard and moustache, and looked very dignified and respectable. "'Tell me, Dorothy,' he said, "'do all men here wear duds like these?' "'Yes,' she replied, "'all except the scarecrow and the shaggy man, and, of course, the tin woodman and Tick-Tock, who are made of metal.' You'll find all the men at Ozma's court dressed just as you are, only perhaps a little finer. Henry, you look like a play-actor, announced Aunt Em, looking at her husband critically. And you, Em, look more highfalutin than a peacock, he replied. I guess you're right, she said regretfully. But we're helpless victims of high-tone royalty. Dorothy was much amused. Come with me, she said, and I'll show you round the palace. She took them through the beautiful rooms and introduced them to all the people they chanced to meet. Also, she showed them her own pretty rooms, which were not far from their own. So it's all true, said Aunt Em, wide-eyed with amazement. And what Dorothy told us of this fairy country was plain facts instead of dreams. But where are all the strange creatures you used to know here? "'Yes, where's the Scarecrow?' 
inquired Uncle Henry. Why, he's just now away on a visit to the Tin Woodman, who is Emperor of the Winky Country, answered the little girl. You'll see him when he comes back, and you're sure to like him. And where's the wonderful wizard? asked Aunt Em. You'll see him at Ozma's luncheon, for he lives here in this palace, was the reply. And Jack Pumpkinhead? Oh, he lives a little way out of town in his own pumpkin field. We'll go there sometime and see him, and we'll call on Professor Wogglebug, too. The shaggy man will be at the luncheon, I guess, and Tick-Tock. And now I'll take you out to see Billina, who has a house of her own. So they went into the backyard, and after walking along winding paths some distance through the beautiful gardens, they came to an attractive little house where the yellow hen sat on the front porch sunning herself. "'Good morning, my dear mistress,' called Billina, fluttering down to meet them. "'I was expecting you to call, for I heard you had come back and brought your uncle and aunt with you.' "'We're here for good and all this time, Billina,' cried Dorothy joyfully. "'Uncle Henry and Aunt Em belong to Oz now as much as I do.' "'Then they are very lucky people,' declared Billina, "'for there couldn't be a nicer place to live.' But come, my dear, I must show you all my Dorothys. Nine are living and have grown up to be very respectable hens, but one took cold at Ozma's birthday party and died of the pip, and the other two turned out to be horrid roosters, so I had to change their names from Dorothy to Daniel. They all had the letter D engraved upon their gold lockets, you remember, with your picture inside, and D stands for Daniel as well as for Dorothy. "'Do you call both the roosters Daniel?' asked Uncle Henry. "'Yes, indeed. I've nine Dorothys and two Daniels, and the nine Dorothys have eighty-six sons and daughters, and over three hundred grandchildren,' said Billina proudly. "'What names do you give them all, dear?' inquired the little girl. "'Oh, they are all Dorothys and Daniels, some being juniors and some double juniors. Dorothy and Daniel are two good names.' "'And I see no object in hunting for others,' declared the yellow hen. "'But just think, Dorothy, what a big chicken family we've grown to be, "'and our numbers increase nearly every day. "'Ozma doesn't know what to do with all the eggs we lay, "'and we are never eaten or harmed in any way, as chickens are in your country. "'They give us everything to make us contented and happy, "'and I, my dear, am the acknowledged queen and governor of every chicken in Oz.' "'because I'm the eldest, and started the whole colony.' "'You ought to be very proud, ma'am,' said Uncle Henry, "'who was astonished to hear a hen talk so sensibly. "'Oh, I am,' she replied. "'I've the loveliest pearl necklace you ever saw. "'Come in the house, and I'll show it to you. "'And I've nine leg bracelets and a diamond pin for each wing, "'but I only wear them on state occasions.' "'They followed the yellow hen into the house,' which Aunt Em declared was neat as a pen. They could not sit down, because all Billina's chairs were roosting poles made of silver, so they had to stand while the hen fussily showed them her treasures. Then they had to go into the back rooms, occupied by Billina's nine Dorothys and two Daniels, who were all plump yellow chickens, and greeted the visitors very politely. It was easy to see that they were well-bred and that Bellina had looked after their education. 
In the yards were all the children and grandchildren of these eleven elders, and they were of all sizes, from well-grown hens to tiny chickens just out of the shell. About fifty fluffy yellow youngsters were at school, being taught good manners and good grammar by a young hen who wore spectacles. They sang in chorus a patriotic song of the Land of Oz, in honor of their visitors, and Aunt Em was much impressed by these talking chickens. Dorothy wanted to stay and play with the young chickens for a while, but Uncle Henry and Aunt Em had not seen the palace grounds and gardens yet, and were eager to get better acquainted with the marvelous and delightful land in which they were to live. "'I'll stay here, and you can go for a walk,' said Dorothy. "'You'll be perfectly safe anywhere, and may do whatever you want to. When you get tired, go back to the palace and find your rooms, and I'll come to you before luncheon is ready.' So Uncle Henry and Aunt Em started out alone to explore the grounds, and Dorothy knew that they couldn't get lost, because all the palace grounds were enclosed by a high wall of green marble set with emeralds. It was a rare treat to these simple folk, who had lived in the country all their lives and known little enjoyment of any sort, to wear beautiful clothes and live in a palace and be treated with respect and consideration by all around them. They were very happy indeed as they strolled up the shady walks and looked upon the gorgeous flowers and shrubs, feeling that their new home was more beautiful than any tongue could describe. Suddenly, as they turned a corner and walked through a gap in a high hedge, they came face to face with an enormous lion which crouched upon the green lawn and seemed surprised by their appearance. They stopped short. Uncle Henry trembling with horror, and Aunt Em too terrified to scream. Next moment the poor woman clasped her husband around the neck and cried, Save me, Henry, save me! Can't even save myself, Em, he returned in a husky voice, for the animal looks as if he could eat both of us and lick its chops for more. If I only had a gun... Haven't you, Henry, haven't you? she asked anxiously. Ne'er a gun, Em. So let's die as brave and graceful as we can. I knew our luck couldn't last. I won't die. I won't be eaten by a lion, wailed Aunt Em, glaring upon the huge beast. Then a thought struck her, and she whispered, Henry, I've heard as savage beasties can be conquered by the human eye. I'll eye that lion out of countenance and save our lives. Try it, Em. He returned, also in a whisper, Look at him as you do at me when I'm late to dinner. Aunt Em turned upon the lion a determined countenance and a wild, dilated eye. She glared at the immense beast steadily, and the lion, who had been quietly blinking at them, began to appear uneasy and disturbed. Is anything the matter, ma'am? he asked in a mild voice. At this speech from the terrible beast, Aunt Em and Uncle Henry both were startled, and then Uncle Henry remembered that this must be the lion they had seen in Ozma's throne room. Hold on, Em, he exclaimed. Quit the eagle eye conquest and take courage. I guess this is the same cowardly lion Dorothy has told us about. Oh, is it? she cried, much relieved. When he spoke, I got the idea. 
And when he looked so shame-like, I was sure of it, Uncle Henry continued. Aunt Em regarded the animal with new interest. Are you the cowardly lion? she inquired. Are you Dorothy's friend? Yes'm, answered the lion meekly. Dorothy and I are old chums and are very fond of each other. I'm the king of beasts, you know, and the hungry tiger and I serve Princess Ozma as her bodyguards. To be sure, said Aunt Em, nodding, but the king of beasts shouldn't be cowardly. I've heard that said before, remarked the lion, yawning till he showed two great rows of sharp white teeth. But that does not keep me from being frightened whenever I go into battle. What do you do, run? asked Uncle Henry. No, that would be foolish, for the enemy would run after me, declared the lion. So I tremble with fear and pitch in as hard as I can, and so far I have always won my fight. Ah, I begin to understand, said Uncle Henry. Were you scared when I looked at you just now? inquired Aunt Em. Terribly scared, madam, answered the lion, for at first I thought you were going to have a fit. Then I noticed you were trying to overcome me by the power of your eye, and your glance was so fierce and penetrating that I shook with fear. This greatly pleased the lady, and she said quite cheerfully, Well, I won't hurt you, so don't be scared any more. I just wanted to see what the human eye was good for. The human eye is a fearful weapon, remarked the lion, scratching his nose softly with his paw to hide a smile. Had I not known you were Dorothy's friends, I might have torn you both into shreds in order to escape your terrible gaze. Aunt Em shuddered at hearing this, and Uncle Henry said hastily, I'm glad you knew us. Good morning, Mr. Lion. We'll hope to see you again by and by, some time in the future. Good morning, replied the lion, squatting down upon the lawn again. You are likely to see a good deal of me if you live in the land of Oz. End of chapter 7 Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying Emerald City of Oz. And just a reminder, it really helps if you... You don't have to donate money, you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is go to wherever you find this show and just review it. Give it a couple of stars. Give it well, more than a couple of stars. I mean, at least three or four. And, you know, always say something... Not always. Jeez, I don't want to tell you what to do. But say something nice. I don't know. There's people who don't like the first three minutes and are, like, really mean about it. And, uh... Yeah, I don't know. It's not... Anyway, just, just, it helps the show, and it gets me money for advertising, so I don't have to do this in the middle of the show. All right, thank you very much, and hope you enjoy the next 15 to 20 minutes left of the show. All right, thank you. Have a good one. Eight. How the Grand Gollipoot Joined the Gnomes After leaving the Whimsies, Guff continued on his journey and penetrated far into the northwest. He wanted to get to the country of the Growlywogs, and in order to do that, he must cross the Ripple Land, which was a hard thing to do, for the Ripple Land was a succession of hills and valleys, all very steep and rocky, and they changed places constantly by rippling. While Guff was climbing a hill, it sank down under him and became a valley, and while he was descending into a valley, it rose up and carried him to the top of a hill. 
This was very perplexing to a traveler, and a stranger might have thought he could never cross the Ripple Land at all. But Guff knew that if he kept steadily on, he would get to the end at last, so he paid no attention to the changing hills and valleys, and plodded along as calmly as if walking upon the level ground. The result of this wise persistence was that the general finally reached firmer soil and, after penetrating a dense forest, came to the dominion of the Growlywogs. No sooner had he crossed the border of this domain when two guards seized him and carried him before the grand Galliput of the Growlywogs, who scowled upon him ferociously and asked him why he dared intrude upon his territory. I am the Lord High General of the Invincible Army of the Gnomes, and my name is Guff, was the reply. All the world trembles when that name is mentioned. The Growlywogs gave a shout of jeering laughter at this, and one of them caught the gnome in his strong arms and tossed him high into the air. Guff was considerably shaken when he fell upon the hard ground, but he appeared to take no notice of the impertinence and composed himself to speak again to the Grand Gulliput. My master, King Roquat the Red, has sent me here to confer with you. He wishes your assistance to conquer the land of Oz. Here the general paused, and the Grand Gulliput scowled upon him more terribly than ever and said, Go on. The voice of the Grand Gulliput was partly a roar and partly a growl. He mumbled his words badly, and Guff had to listen carefully in order to understand him. These Growlywogs were certainly remarkable creatures. They were of gigantic size, yet were all bone and skin and muscle, there being no meat or fat upon their bodies at all. Their powerful muscles lay just underneath their skins like bunches of tough rope, and the weakest Growlywog was so strong that he could pick up an elephant and toss it seven miles away. It seems unfortunate that strong people are usually so disagreeable and overbearing that no one cares for them. In fact, to be different from your fellow creatures is always a misfortune. The Growlywogs knew that they were disliked and avoided by everyone, so they had become surly and unsociable, even among themselves. Guff knew that they hated all people, including the gnomes, but he hoped to win them over nevertheless, and knew that if he succeeded they would afford him very powerful assistance. The land of Oz is ruled by a namby-pamby girl who is disgustingly kind and good. He continued, her people are all happy and contented and have no care or worries whatever. Go on, growled the Grand Gulliput. Once the Gnome King enslaved the royal family of Ev, another goody-goody lot that we detest, said the general. But Ozma interfered, although it was none of her business, and marched her army against us. With her was a Kansas girl named Dorothy, and a yellow hen, and they marched directly into the Gnome King's cavern. There they liberated our slaves from Ev, and stole King Roquat's magic belt, which they carried away with them. 
So now our king is making a tunnel under the deadly desert, so we can march through it to the Emerald City. When we get there, we mean to conquer and destroy all the land, and recapture the magic belt. Again he paused, and again the Grand Gallipoot growled, Go on. Guff tried to think what to say next, and a happy thought soon occurred to him. We want you to help us in this conquest, he announced, for we need the mighty aid of the Growlywogs in order to make sure that we shall not be defeated. You are the strongest people in all the world, and you hate good and happy creatures as much as we gnomes do. I am sure it will be a real pleasure to you to tear down the beautiful Emerald City, and in return for your valuable assistance, we will allow you to bring back to your country ten thousand people of Oz to be your slaves. Twenty thousand, growled the Grand Gallipoot. All right, we promise you twenty thousand, agreed the general. The Gallipoot made a signal. and at once his attendants picked up General Guff and carried him away to a prison where the jailer amused himself by sticking pins in the round, fat body of the old gnome to see him jump and hear him yell. But while this was going on, the Grand Gallipoot was talking with his counselors, who were the most important officials of the Growlywogs. When he had stated to them the proposition of the gnome king, he said, My advice is to offer to help them. Then, when we have conquered the land of Oz, we will take not only our twenty thousand prisoners, but all the gold and jewels we want. Let us take the magic belt, too, suggested one counselor. And rob the Nome King and make him our slave, said another. That is a good idea, declared the Grand Gallipoot. I like King Roquat for my own slave. He could black my boots and bring me my porridge every morning while I am in bed. There is a famous scarecrow in Oz. I'll take him for my slave, said a counselor. I'll take Tick-Tock, the machine man, said another. Give me the tin woodman, said a third. They went on for some time, dividing up the people and the treasure of Oz in advance of the conquest, for they had no doubt at all that they would be able to destroy Ozma's domain. Were they not the strongest people in all the world? The deadly desert has kept us out of Oz before, remarked the Grand Gallipoot. But now that the Nome King is building a tunnel, We shall get into the Emerald City very easily. So let us send the little fat general back to his king with our promise to assist him. We will not say that we intend to conquer the gnomes after we have conquered Oz, but we will do so just the same. This plan being agreed upon, they all went home to dinner, leaving General Guff still in prison. The gnome had no idea that he had succeeded in his mission, for finding himself in prison, he feared the growly wogs intended to put him to death. By this time the jailer had tired of sticking pins in the general, 
and was amusing himself by carefully pulling the gnome's whiskers out by the roots, one at a time. This enjoyment was interrupted by the grand gollipoot sending for the prisoner. "'Wait a few hours,' begged the jailer. "'I haven't pulled out a quarter of his whiskers yet.' "'If you keep the grand gollipoot waiting, he'll break your back,' declared the messenger. "'Perhaps you're right,' sighed the jailer. "'Take the prisoner away, if you will. "'But I advise you to kick him at every step he takes. "'It will be good fun, for he is as soft as a ripe peach.' So Guff was led away to the royal castle, where the Grand Gollipoot told him that the Growly Wogs had decided to assist the gnomes in conquering the land of Oz. "'Whenever you are ready,' he added, "'send me word, and I will march with eighteen thousand of my most powerful warriors to your aid.' Guff was so delighted that he forgot all the smarting caused by the pins and the pulling of the whiskers. He did not even complain of the treatment he had received, but thanked the Grand Gollipoot and hurried away upon his journey. He had now secured the assistance of the Whimsies and the Growlywogs, but his success made him long for still more allies. His own life depended upon his conquering Oz, and he said to himself, I'll take no chances. I'll be certain of success. Then, when Oz is destroyed, perhaps I shall be a greater man than old Roquat, and I can throw him away and be king of the gnomes myself. Why not? Whimsies are stronger than the gnomes, and they also are my friends. There are some people still stronger than the Growlywogs. And if I can but induce them to aid me, I shall have nothing more to fear. End of chapter 8 Chapter 9 How the Wogglebug Taught Athletics It did not take Dorothy long to establish herself in her new home, for she knew the people and the manners and customs of the Emerald City just as well as she knew the old Kansas farm. But Uncle Henry and Aunt Em had some trouble in getting used to the finery and pomp and ceremony of Ozma's place, and felt uneasy because they were obliged to be dressed up all the time. Yet everyone was very courteous and kind to them, and endeavored to make them happy. Ozma, especially, made much of Dorothy's relatives for her little friend's sake and she well knew that the awkwardness and strangeness of their new mode of life would all wear off in time. The old people were chiefly troubled by the fact that there was no work for them to do. "'Every day is like Sunday now,' declared Aunt Em solemnly, "'and I can't say I like it. If they'd only let me do up the dishes after meals, or even sweep and dust my own rooms, I'd be a deal happier. Henry don't know what to do with himself, either, and once, when he stole out and fed the chickens—' Belina scolded him for letting him eat between meals. I never knew before what a hardship it is to be rich and have everything you want. These complaints began to worry Dorothy, so she had a long talk with Ozma upon the subject. I see I must find them something to do, said the girlish ruler of Oz seriously. I've been watching your uncle and aunt, and I believe that they will be more contented if occupied with some light tasks. While I am considering the matter, Dorothy, you might make a trip with them through the land of Oz, visiting some of the odd corners and introducing your relatives to some of our curious people. 
Oh, that would be fine, exclaimed Dorothy eagerly. I will give you an escort befitting your rank as a princess, continued Ozma, and you may go to some of the places you have not yet visited yourself, as well as some others that you know. I will mark out a plan of the trip for you, and have everything in readiness for you to start tomorrow morning. Take your time, dear, and be gone as long as you wish. By the time you return, I shall have found some occupation for Uncle Henry and Aunt Em that will keep them from being restless and dissatisfied. Dorothy thanked her good friend and kissed the lovely ruler gratefully. Then she ran to tell the joyful news to her uncle and aunt. Next morning after breakfast, everything was found ready for their departure. The escort included Ambi Ambi, the captain general of Ozma's army, which consisted merely of twenty-seven officers, besides the captain general. Once Ambi Ambi had been a private soldier, the only private in the army, but as there was never any fighting to do, Ozma saw no need of a private, so she made Ambi Ambi the highest officer of them all. He was very tall and slim, and wore a gay uniform and a fierce mustache. Yet the mustache was the only fierce thing about Ambi Ambi, whose nature was as gentle as that of a child. The wonderful wizard had asked to join the party, and with him came his friend the Shaggy Man, who was shaggy but not ragged, being dressed in fine silks with satin shags and bobtails. The Shaggy Man had shaggy whiskers and hair, but a sweet disposition and a soft, pleasant voice. There was an open wagon with three seats for the passengers, and the wagon was drawn by the famous wooden sawhorse, which had once been brought to life by Ozma by means of a magic powder. The sawhorse wore wooden shoes to keep his wooden legs from wearing away, and he was strong and swift. As this curious creature was Ozma's own favorite steed, and very popular with all the people of the Emerald City, Dorothy knew that she had been highly favored by being permitted to use the sawhorse on her journey. In the front seat of the wagon sat Dorothy and the wizard. Uncle Henry and Aunt Em sat in the next seat, and the shaggy man and Ombi Ambi in the third seat. Of course Toto was with the party, curled up at Dorothy's feet, and just as they were about to start, Bellina came fluttering along the path and begged to be taken with them. Dorothy readily agreed, so the yellow hen flew up and perched herself upon the dashboard. She wore her pearl necklace and three bracelets upon each leg, in honor of the occasion. Dorothy kissed Ozma goodbye, and all the people standing around waved their handkerchiefs, and the band in an upper balcony struck up a military march. Then the wizard clucked at the sawhorse and said, Get up! And the wooden animal pranced away and drew behind him the big red wagon and all the passengers without any effort at all. A servant threw open a gate of the palace enclosure that they might pass out, and so with music and shouts following them, the journey was begun. It's almost like a circus, said Aunt Em proudly. I can't help feeling high and mighty in this kind of a turnout. Indeed, as they passed down the street, all the people cheered them lustily, and the shaggy man and the wizard and the captain general all took off their hats and bowed politely in acknowledgment. When they came to the great wall of the Emerald City, the gates were opened by the guardian who always tended them. 
Over the gateway hung a dull-colored metal magnet shaped like a horseshoe, placed around a shield of polished gold. That, said the shaggy man impressively, is the wonderful love magnet. I brought it to the Emerald City myself, and all who pass underneath this gateway are both loving and beloved. It's a fine thing, declared Aunt Em admiringly. If we'd had it in Kansas, I guess the man who held a mortgage on the farm wouldn't have turned us out. Then I'm glad we didn't have it, returned Uncle Henry. I like Oz better than Kansas, even. And this little wood sawhorse beats all the critters I ever saw. He don't have to be curried or fed or watered, and he's strong as an ox. Can he talk, Dorothy? Yes, Uncle, replied the child. But the sawhorse never says much. He told me once that he can't talk and think at the same time, so he prefers to think. Which is very sensible, declared the wizard, nodding approvingly. Which way do we go, Dorothy? Straight ahead into the quadling country, she answered. I've got a letter of introduction to Miss Cuttenclip. Oh, exclaimed the wizard, much interested. Are we going there? Then I'm glad I came, for I have always wanted to meet the Cuttenclips. Who are they? inquired Aunt Em. Wait till we get there, replied Dorothy with a laugh. Then you'll see for yourself. I've never seen the Cuttenclips, you know, so I can't exactly explain them to you. Once free of the Emerald City, the sawhorse dashed away at tremendous speed. Indeed, he went so fast that Aunt Em had hard work to catch her breath, and Uncle Henry held fast to the seat of the red wagon. "'Gently, gently, my boy,' called the wizard, and at this the sawhorse slackened his speed. "'What's wrong?' asked the animal, slightly turning his wooden head to look at the party with one eye, which was a knot of wood. "'Why, we wish to admire the scenery, that's all,' answered the wizard. "'Some of your passengers,' added the shaggy man, "'have never been out of the Emerald City before, and the country is all new to them.' "'If you go too fast, you'll spoil all the fun,' said Dorothy. "'There's no hurry.' "'Very well. It is all the same to me,' observed the sawhorse, and after that he went at a more moderate pace. Uncle Henry was astonished. "'How can a wooden thing be so intelligent?' he asked. "'Why, I gave him some sawdust brains the last time I fitted his head with new ears,' explained the wizard. "'The sawdust was made from hard knots, and now the sawhorse is able to think out any knotty problem he meets with.' "'I see,' said Uncle Henry. "'I don't,' remarked Aunt Em, but no one paid any attention to this statement. Before long they came to a stately building that stood upon a green plain with handsome shade trees grouped here and there. "'What is that?' asked Uncle Henry. "'That,' replied the wizard, "'is the Royal Athletic College of Oz, which is directed by Professor H. M. Wogglebug, T.E. "'Let's stop and make a call.' suggested Dorothy. So the sawhorse drew up in front of the great building, and they were met at the door by the learned Wogglebug himself. He seemed fully as tall as the wizard, and was dressed in a red and white checkered vest, and a blue swallow-tailed coat, and had yellow knee-breeches and purple stockings upon his slender legs. A tall hat was jauntily set upon his head, and he wore spectacles over his big bright eyes. "'Welcome, Dorothy,' said the Wogglebug, 
and welcome to all your friends. We are indeed pleased to receive you at this great temple of learning. I thought it was an athletic college, said the shaggy man. It is, my dear sir, answered the wogglebug proudly. Here it is that we teach the youth of our great land scientific college athletics in all their purity. Don't you teach them anything else? asked Dorothy. Don't they get any reading, writing, and arithmetic? Oh, yes, of course. They get all those and more, returned the professor. But such things occupy little of their time. Please follow me, and I will show you how my scholars are usually occupied. This is a class hour, and they are all busy. They followed him to a big field back of the college building, where several hundred young Ozites were at their classes. In one place they played football, in another baseball, some played tennis, some golf, some were swimming in a big pool. Upon a river which wound through the grounds, several crews and racing boats were rowing with great enthusiasm. Other groups of students played basketball and cricket, while in one place a ring was roped in to permit boxing and wrestling by the energetic youths. All the collegians seemed busy, and there was much laughter and shouting. This college, said Professor Wogglebug complacently, is a great success. Its educational value is undisputed, and we are turning out many great and valuable citizens every year. But when do they study? asked Dorothy. Study? said the Wogglebug, looking perplexed at the question. Yes, when do they get their arithmetic and geography and such things? Oh, they take doses of those every night and morning, was the reply. What do you mean by doses? Dorothy inquired wonderingly. Why, we use the newly invented school pills, made by your friend the wizard. These pills we have found to be very effective, and they save a lot of time. Please step this way, and I will show you our laboratory of learning. He led them to a room in the building where many large bottles were standing in rows upon shelves. These are the algebra pills, said the professor, taking down one of the bottles. One at night on retiring is equal to four hours of study. Here are the geography pills, one at night and one in the morning. In this next bottle are the Latin pills, one three times a day. Then we have the grammar pills, one before each meal, and the spelling pills, which are taken whenever needed. Your scholars must have to take a lot of pills, remarked Dorothy thoughtfully. How do they take them? In applesauce? No, my dear. They are sugar-coated and are quickly and easily swallowed. I believe the students would rather take the pills than study, and certainly the pills are a more effective method. You see, until these school pills were invented, we wasted a lot of time in study that may now be better employed in practicing athletics. Seems to me the pills are a good thing, said Omby Amby. Who remembered how it used to make his head ache as a boy to study arithmetic? They are, sir, declared the Wogglebug earnestly. They give us an advantage over all other colleges.
because, at no loss of time, our boys become thoroughly conversant with Greek and Latin, mathematics and geography, grammar and literature. You see, they are never obliged to interrupt their games to acquire the lesser branches of learning. It's a great invention, I'm sure, said Dorothy, looking admiringly at the wizard, who blushed modestly at this praise. We live in an age of progress, announced Professor Wogglebug pompously. It is easier to swallow knowledge than to acquire it laboriously from books. Is it not so, my friends? Some folks can swallow anything, said Aunt Em, but to me this seems too much like taking medicine. Young men in college always have to take their medicine one way or another, observed the wizard with a smile. And, as our professor says, these school pills have proved to be a great success. One day, while I was making them, I happened to drop one of them, and one of Bellina's chickens gobbled it up. A few minutes afterward, this chick got upon a roost and recited, The boy stood on the burning deck, without making a single mistake. Then it recited, The Charge of the Light Brigade, and afterwards Excelsior, you see, the chicken had eaten an elocution pill. They now bade good-bye to the professor, and thanking him for his kind reception, mounted again into the red wagon and continued their journey. End of chapter 9